All right, I would invite you this morning to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, we'll finish what we started last week with the battle within, the battle within. We're going to read uh, all those verses this morning, verses 14 through 25, and then uh, we'll go from there. Romans 7, starting to read at verse 14, God's inerrant and inspired and sufficient word reads, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. And so now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin." Father, I would ask a blessing upon the reading of your word. And Lord, as we read these words, Lord, we may ourselves find confused by them and and in that confusion even relate with with what Paul is saying. And Father, as we also think about these words, we do believe that they are indeed inspired, that they are indeed recorded on purpose and for a purpose and for us to read this Sunday morning. And so I would pray and ask that your spirit would illuminate this text, that, it would, that your spirit would open our hearts and our minds as we spend a few minutes looking at it, not just to understand this difficult text, but also to be able to apply it to our life and more specifically, to our life today. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. And so I've titled this, The Battle Within Part 2, The Battle Within Part 2. These few verses here seems to be as though Paul is completely out of character of himself. And and as I had mentioned last week, it's as, as though that we get to read a page out of Paul's own personal and private journal that he recorded and did not realize that we're reading it here today because that's how personal it seems to be. 
And I also mentioned last week that what each and every one of us wants is authenticity. What we want is to know what's going inside of ourselves and each other, at least those that we care about. And yet we also know that often authenticity or openness or honesty can be elusive because there is a particular facade, a particular front, a particular way that we need to act, or at least that we're told we need to act in certain environments. And that can certainly be good. There is a place and a time uh, to be this open, and there is also a place and a time to be careful, and wisdom needs to be uh, used in both scenarios. But here we see these words of Paul, and there's, there's two different ideologies, really, <clears throat> or methodologies, if you will, of interpreting this text. One is that this is, is Paul before he was ever a Christian. Uh, and, and the other is that, no, this is Paul as a Christian. Of course, uh, my perspective, as I said last week, and I think it would be the, the correct perspective, uh, and that is that, no, this is literally Paul as a Christian, and yet wrestling in life, in his spiritual life, in his religious life, just as I would suspect each and every one of us does. And as we think about Paul, and these verses are a bit of an anomaly for Paul, uh, not entirely. And so if we look at some other areas of Paul's writings, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, Early on in Paul's career, if you will, or Paul's ministry, if you will, he wrote these words. He said, I am the least of the, the apostles. And about two years later in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul steps it up just a bit where he says, I am the very least of all saints. From apostles to a handful of folks to saints, saints would be anyone who is a Christian is a saint, and he ramps it up just a bit. And then at the end of Paul's life, as he is writing his final treaties or his final letter instructions to Timothy, his uh, son in the faith, in 1 Timothy 1.5, it seems as though that Paul can look back on a lifetime of living and write these words, I am the foremost sinner of all. And I think, Paul, as you follow that progression through the life of Paul, we too can see that in the life of a believer, in the life of us as Christian people, early on in our faith, maybe we are, and I would hope this would be the case, that, that we are, of course, fired up about how God has saved us. And we think there's a period of time where we think we live perfectly, right? There's that season of life, and as we go on, our sin nature, our human nature that isn't completely done away with seems to come up and we realize, well, well, maybe not. Maybe I do have a few flaws. Maybe I do have some growth yet in my Christian life. And I often find this to be the case as I talk with elderly saints and as they reflect upon their life, the humility that they show realizing that they are indeed not perfect and that they are indeed or did indeed at times have some wrong understandings. You know, and I think sometimes that's where we can be as Christian people. There can be times, and especially I myself, as you already know, I've got an opinion, and my opinion is correct, and as I'm fond of being wrong, um, <laughs> but as you go through life sometimes, and as you come into situations, you just realize that there is a lot of things that we don't completely understand yet, and we need to hold them openly to a degree, 
and with a sense and with a spirit of humility. And I think that's what we see Paul witnessing for us here. That here he is in the midst of writing a letter uh, to a church at Rome that he didn't plant, that he hadn't even visited yet. And as he's writing these instructions in Romans 8, or the whole chapter, or the book of Romans, as you know, uh, is dense theology, uh, though it is easy enough to understand, but you do have to wade through it. And in the midst of this, he all of a sudden just kind of reveals his own battles that go on within. And so if for nothing else, I would pray that uh, whatever you are facing in your life, whatever the battles are there in your life, and whatever those things are within your life that maybe you feel you can't reveal, that you could take courage by these words of Paul and, and, and seek out someone that you can uh, have confidence in and maybe reveal some of the burdens that you yourself carry and allow someone else to continue to walk this journey with you also, just as we see, and I believe, what Paul is doing here. And so last week, we covered verses 14 through 18 with what I called, you know, the, the, con- the conflict. We've seen the, the conflict here in these few verses. And what we had seen in, over those verses is that a person maturing in their Christian faith is keenly aware of the battle within. And this battle is brought about by this conflict of two natures. And these two natures are our spiritual side, right? We, the, the, the Holy Spirit living within us, it, it comes into conflict with our yet-to-be-perfected human nature that is within us because we've not yet reached that. So those two uh, come in conflict with each other. The flesh and the spirit at times come into conflict with each other. And we had also seen that a self-righteous person and a non-believer have something very similar in common, and that is that they often do not recognize this conflict within. A non-believer, of course, doesn't even really care. They have no sense of trying to follow the laws of God or the, the, the way of God. And then you also have the, the, the self-righteous person who believes they have reached that sense of perfection, that sense of holiness, and therefore they too don't see the battle within. And so today we want to move on to the next few verses, 19 through 21, and we want to look at uh, the contradiction that we see. Contradiction here is, is very similar, of course, to the conflict, but it starts out in verse 19 is where we want to pick it up here today. And in verse 19, it starts out with the good that I want. And we need to just sit there for just a moment and reflect upon the good that Paul is speaking of here. See, Paul wants a right relationship with Christ. Paul wants to follow the law. Paul wants to live a holy life, and yet he struggles with doing that. What Paul wants and what Paul does, or what Paul actually does, are two different things. Paul desires to have a right relationship with Christ. Paul desires to follow the law as he did in that self-righteous Pharisee that God saved him from. Paul wants to live a holy life, and yet he finds within himself that often he fails in that, and that is the frustration that we see with Paul. Paul here, if we just looked at these few verses on its surface, what we would see and maybe recognize uh, would be a troubled man. 
A man who says the very things that I do not want to do are the very things that I actually do, and the things that I want to do are the actual are the very things I do not do. And we could say, well, Paul, why don't you just change up already? Why don't you use a little more discipline in your life and actually do the things that you want to do and don't do the things? It's not really that hard, Paul. Don't do the things you don't want to do and do the things you want to do, right? And yet Paul is battling through here. And I might pause for here just a moment also and, and say that often new believers have this sense, and maybe we give falsely to say, oh, if you would just give your heart and your life to Christ, your life would be better. In fact, a pastor friend of mine likes to say that we believe that following Jesus makes you better at life and makes, you, makes your life better. And, and that's about the you, right? Makes my life better? Yeah, but in what way? Makes me better at life? Yeah, but in what way? And that's the sense that we often have. If you just surrender your heart and life to Christ, it, 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 it won't rain anymore. You know, all these bad things, whatever, all these bad things that you're struggling with and that you're wrestling with, these problems in your life will just go away. We treat God, we treat salvation as a genie in a bottle, if you will. And often, I think, for those who us who have walked this journey of following Jesus, which we believe it will make our life better, Maybe not in the here and now, but the time will come where it certainly will. But, but maybe. But maybe you've walked this journey for a while, and you've recognized this battle within. And so I would ask that as we disciple new believers, that we're careful on the message that we send, and yet also careful that we don't send them a discouraging message. But often, as a Christian, we do find these battles within stronger than when we are not Christian. Now look at verse 19. Paul says, For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. It's just a, uh, it's just a restatement of verse 15. He just said exactly the same thing in verse 15 where he said, But I am doing the very thing that I hate. And, and verse 20 is also a restatement of verse 17 where he says in verse 20, the sin dwells in with, within me. Verse 17, he also says, sin dwells within me. And so he's just restating what he has already said. And so what we want to do is look at verse 21. We want to look at verse 21 this morning. And so if you have your Bibles open, I would ask you to look at that and read that once more, where Paul says, I find then the principle and if you have an ESV, and I'm not sure about some of the other translations, principle, pneumos, so it would certainly be a law, but it's translated here as principle, and your translation may say, say law. But it says, I find then the principle or the law that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do right. And I think there's some significance in having it translated either as law or principle, but principle, I think, because it gives us a sense of a rule of life, right? We have these rules in our life and, and, and rules in our life that kind of govern how we function. And we set some of those things up. But, but hear what Paul is saying, that there seems to be this, this negative rule of life, that it seems to be that, that what I want to do is exactly what I don't do. In fact, maybe the secular world would say it something like this. If it wasn't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all, right? Not that Christians would say that because we don't believe in luck, but sometimes it seems as though that that's how life 
presents itself. And I believe that's what Paul is saying here when he says that I find in the principle that evil is present in me. The one who actually wants to do good, Paul is saying, ends up not doing good. And it's as though it's like, why is this happening? It's like this rule of life that I cannot shake. It says, when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. Can you feel the frustration within Paul? Can you sense the battle that he has, that he's going through in himself? Can you relate with Paul when you read these words? He also says in verse 21 that evil is present. Evil is present. Evil or is present. Present is just something that is to be at the ready. It's in place there for a purpose, ready for some purpose, to be readily available for use or for services, just as though this evil is just sitting there and just waiting to take effect. Last week or the week before, I don't recall, we, we talked a little bit about the Ten Commandments where Paul said that uh, he talked about he wouldn't understand coveting if the law said thou shalt not covet. But let's think about the Ten Commandments for a moment, just a few of them anyways. And as we think about thou shalt not commit adultery or sexual immorality, uh, it doesn't just like happen, right? I mean, there comes a point in time where a decision has to be made. We murder. Well, hopefully we don't. But, right, there comes a point in time where a decision needs to be made. Steal. There comes a point in time where a decision is made. Those are easy, are they not? Well, what about lying? You say, well, there comes a point in time where a decision needs to be made. Exactly, exactly. But sometimes we may be tempted and we think, how, what? That, that was a half-truth. Or how did, why did I say that? Or how did it come out like that? And we understand that we didn't necessarily purposefully lie, and yet we did. And yet it kind of like snuck up on us and took that opportunity when we were faced with an uncomfortable question, something that was present just caused us to not answer it, maybe authentically, and we have to go back and make that right. And I find it interesting that Paul talked about coveting because that could be the same way. There's all kinds of things we're not supposed to covet, right? But given time, and if we're not careful, coveting can sneak up on us also. And a point has to come where we need to eradicate that from our life, right? I was reminded of Genesis 4-7. In Genesis 4-7, where we got the story of Cain and Abel, and where God warned Cain and said, Cain, listen. He said, if you do well, because he didn't like his offering that he brought. He didn't give his best. And so God says, listen, if you do well, It'll go well with you. Your countenance will be lifted. Your face will be lifted. The joy in your life will be lifted. And if you do well, that's what will happen. But if you don't do well, sin is, is hanging out at the door. Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. It's just as though there's something present that is just waiting for an opportune moment to cause us to trip up and fall into these frustrations that Paul himself is falling into. The clarification 
We could say it just simply, we don't practice what we preach. Now, I hear that all, not all the time. No, nobody here tells me that, but um, out there, some people, I read it sometimes, right? Um, well, oh, you need to practice what you preach. And amen, 100%, we do. But every single one of us is preaching something, are we not? And every single one of us, I think, we fail at always practicing. It's much easier to preach than live it. <laughs> I think we can all find that to be the case. That is the contradiction that Paul is raising. We want to we practice what we preach. But so often, we seem to fail at that. It's a clarification. I mean, the, the contradiction. But Paul wants to bring some clarification now to the contradiction. In verses 22 to 23... Paul starts out in verse 23, for I joyfully concur with the law of God. Now, the law of God here is quite significant. It's quite different from the law of, of, 20, of verse 21 where it said that it was present, that the law was present, or that uh, the sense there was that it was the, the principle was present. It's quite different there because Paul has nothing bad to say about the law. In fact, in verse 14, he said this, the law is spiritual. The law is divine. The law is good. In verse 16, he says that the law is good. Paul has nothing bad to say about the law. A non-believer, a person who doesn't believe, finds nothing joyful about the law of God. A non-believer finds everything, in fact, about the law of God being restrictive and holding a person back from doing what I want or, or having fun. God's anti-fun. We hear those types of things at times. In Romans chapter 8, verse 6 and 7, probably on the same page of, of where you're at now. Look down there. It says, for the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Verse 7 clarifies it. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. A mind who is not aligned with God, a life who isn't committed to God is actually hostile to God and doesn't desire to follow the law. That's not where Paul is, and this is another reason why we must understand this is Paul as a believer. Paul is speaking about himself personally as a, a believer. In Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 and 3, the psalmist there writes, it's not the first psalm that was written but I do find it interesting that it's placed at the beginning of the Psalms. That is, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor seat, sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh. In his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in the season. It's a couple of verses we know well, right? This is a person who is joyful, who concurs with the law of God. In verse 22, he continues with, in the inner man, that is concerning the inner man. And concerning the inner man, what is the inner man? The inner man is just our heart. It's our mind. It's our soul. 2 Corinthians 4.16, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, right? Our outer man is decaying. Our outer man is not in line with God, yet our inner is being renewed day by day. Our heart and our mind and our soul is being renewed day by day. How? Without any effort? Without work? Do we just allow it to happen? Does it happen on its own? No, it doesn't. 
Psalm 19, 119, verses uh, 9 through 16. I'll let you look those up for yourself, but it simply says, How can a young man keep his way pure, his heart pure? By following the laws, by following the word, by reading the scriptures, by meditating upon them, by being intentional about how we protect our inner man, our heart, our mind, and our soul. Look at verse 23 as Paul continues to give some clarification to the contradiction that he's calling forth here in these few chapters, in these few verses, where he says here, but, of course, here we see that he's going to what, negate everything he just said or bring clarification to it. He says this, but I see a different law in members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. A different law. It's not the law that Paul is delighting in in verse 22. He doesn't find, you know, it's a different law. Members of my body is not the mind and the soul and the head and the spirit and those things, but it is, it is literally the members of my body are literally our body parts, our appetites. Our hands do things that the hand should not do. Our feet take us places we should not go. This is exactly what Paul is referring to. We've got this idea of our mind where we know, we do the things that we know, and yet our parts of our body for somewhere our outer man is fulfilling and taking and doing the things that is that waging war within us. This waging war is, is literally strategy. It is literally a military campaign that is being waged against our inner man as a Christian people. In fact, again, going back to Genesis 3. Genesis 3, there was one law given. We needed that fruit. And interesting, when you look at the strategy or, or, or the campaign that was waged against Adam and Eve by the serpent, by evil, uh, how was it done? It said, well, what's he supposed to Well, there's, can't eat it. Oh, you can't eat it. Well, the strategy was this. But look at the fruit. It looks good. It's good for you. In fact, it will help you become a better person. All you need to do is eat it because then you'll have knowledge. You'll have understanding. And that will help you be a better person and help you be a better at life and a better person, right? That was the strategy that Satan used, that evil used, that was waging war against them. It was strategic and it was in a way that did not seem to be threatening. And that is often the case that happens, right? We want what we can't have. I had a picture in my mind uh, back on the farm, you know, where you get these animals, and it's like the grass is the same on both sides of the fence. But yet we see these animals stretching through the fence. What's the difference? They just want the grass out there. I find myself there so many times. God gives me these parameters, and yet I want to work outside, especially for somebody like, well, anyways, we'll stop right there. <clears throat> In other words, I'm a horse, right? I mean, I just want what I can't, what, right on the other side of it. It's the same thing. Why are we that way? That's what Paul is saying. It's this frustration that Paul is experiencing. I think we can relate to that. In fact, Paul says, it makes me a prisoner. It makes me captive. It's to, to gain control over, either by force or by deception, it takes us prisoner. We become prisoners of war. In fact, if you were going to read through lexicons, you would find that it's often a reference made here to the spear tip, to the tip of a spear. Or in our context today, I don't think uh, officers or thieves and robbers hold anybody up by spears, but maybe 
Uh, they probably have a gun. So we say, we're going to hold you up by gunpoint. That's literally what Paul is saying. It holds us by gunpoint and takes us and forces us where we do not want to go. That is the warfare that Paul is wrestling with here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses uh, 3 to 5, says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Well, how do we wage war then? For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they're divinely, they're spiritually, they're from God or powerful for the destruction We are destroying speculations, every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We must raise our own or or wage our own warfare intentionally, on purpose. That's what Paul is saying. This is what he's acknowledging here. That if we're not careful, it's these thoughts and these actions and this, this, this sin nature that is still a part of us, very much a part of us can do this very thing to us. Well, verse 24, we see the calamity, or I thought it should have been titled the crisis. If you want to change your outline to the crisis, that would probably flow better. But we see the crisis that Paul finds himself in here where he says in verse 24, it's just as though he all of a sudden is writing through his journal or speaking forth, and he's got this revelation, if you will, and it's just like wretched man that I am. Wretched is just a miserable person. It's somebody who's distressed. This is Paul. This is Paul at the end of what he is writing here, where he becomes totally frustrated with himself. The psalmist, I was reminded of Psalm 6-6, where he writes that I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. What's he saying? Is that literal? Of course not. What's he saying? He's distraught within himself, is he not? And he's there on his couch. He's there before God, crying out. That's what Paul is doing here. That's the sense here. It's just a cry of anguish and of hopelessness, hopeless despair. There's being exhausted because we work as hard as we can. And yet at the end of the day, We relate with what Paul is saying here. There's another side to wretched. In fact, it's the only other place that it is used in our New Testament, in our Bibles. And it's found in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, where we see the church of Laodicea, and where God says that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you would be hot or cold. And he says this, because I say to you, or you say, no, no, I'm rich. I have become wealthy have need of nothing. You do not know, God says, that you are wretched, that you are miserable, that you are poor, that you are blind, that you are naked. That's quite an accusation. It's quite an accusation when these Laodicean Christians, and I believe there are Christians here that are saying, look, I have it all together. My life is great. My life is fantastic. And God says, you don't even recognize. You don't even recognize you really are in this miserable state or this miserable condition. And Paul continues in the 24th verse, and he asks a rhetorical question. I believe it's rhetorical. Who will set me free from this body of death? Well, Paul clearly knows, and this is the crescendo 
that he is bringing here. Who will set me free from this body of death? The celebration of verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ as Savior. Lord as Master. Christ to be Savior must also be Master of our life. Paul is recognizing and acknowledging that right here. In fact, in Matthew 5, verse 3, it's the Beatitudes. You're familiar with them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? We hear this, and this is, this is the person who finds themselves in this position as Paul. And hopefully we don't find ourselves there often, but on occasion, from time to time, maybe in our spiritual journey, we find ourselves relating more closely than we would care to with Paul. And yet, we too must end up where Paul does. Who will set me free? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Paul doesn't stop there. Why doesn't he stop there? He puts in a so then. It's a summation. It's a continuation. It's like, where is he going and what is he doing? The battle for the Christian or the battle for the mind is the battle for the Christian life. And Paul says here, so then, on the one hand, he just sums it up. On the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving what? I'm serving the law of God. But on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. I think what Paul is telling us here is that until we reach that state of glorification, glorification, of course, being when we go home to be with the Lord, when we are perfected at that time, until that time, we will find ourselves from time to time wrestling. And with our mind, we must battle for the law of God, understanding that our flesh is going to battle against that. And so for the Christian, we must stay in the fight. And I think as we try to put application to what Paul is saying here, for the Christian, I believe we must acknowledge and understand that passivity has no place for the Christian. The Christian must remain alert. The Christian must remain armed. The Christian must remain aggressive. We cannot be passive. We cannot just sit back and coast through life. We must be on alert. We must be on guard. And I might close with this right here, verse 8, chapter 8, verse 9, where Paul says this, and we'll get into this later, where he says that you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. He continues, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through the spirit who dwells in you. How many times can Paul say in these few verses that the spirit of God dwells in you? Listen, as, there's no such thing as a Christian without the Spirit. As a Christian, we have the Spirit of God living within us, 
This is why Paul can say what he does. Thanks be to God. And we too can battle. We too can win and have won this war because of the spirit that is within us. We must be active. We must be aggressive. We cannot be passive. We must call upon God in these times of weakness and understand that we're not alone. Understand that Paul himself was there too and understand that maybe the best thing that we can do for those who are around us, those who we are closest to, is to be honest, to be authentic, just as Paul was here also, and knowing that through life together is how we can get through life together, right? We can't do it alone. And so I appreciate these words of Paul. And now as we come to the Lord's table, you know, maybe in some of these thoughts, we think about coming to the Lord's table, it's like, man, you know, I'm wrestling, I'm battling, I have some of these things within us. The very thing that I didn't want to do, you know what, I did it. I'm not qualified to come to the Lord's table. Well, you'll never come to the Lord's table if you wait to be qualified first. But I would pray as we sing this last song, and as we prepare our heart, if there's something there that you need to just confess to your heavenly Father right here, right now, in your seat, in the quietness of our heart, of your heart, that you would take time to do that. Prepare your heart in the next moment. If that is you, if that's where you found yourself this morning, and say, last, I did, last week or last month, I, did, I didn't want it. And you think, you're disqualified. You're not. You're not. Confess it. Let it go and understand that you too are not yet perfected. And this is what we're doing together, right? And so this morning, I pray that your heart can be there this morning as we uh, come to this table this morning, that you can just sit through this song that we'll sing and ask God to search your heart and search your mind. Father, I, I thank you. Father, I thank you for these words of Paul. Lord, they're confusing words, and maybe my words were as confusing as Paul's words were. But I do thank you for your spirit that dwells within us. And so I pray, Lord, that your spirit would take captive our heart, captive our mind, that you would bring clarity there, and that we would just take a moment, take a moment of silence, take a time and reflect upon you and maybe the wrestlings that are within us, or maybe we find ourselves this morning and, and we're not really there yet. Maybe we've been there in the past, but right now we aren't. And so, God, I thank you for that position, that person also. But I pray, Lord, that you would search our heart and our mind and that we would understand that those in you are forever in you, and there we have our victory. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.